0: We don't even have a way to quantify the value of community. Everything just gets reduced to money, like people are just economic units to be shuffled around strategically. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode number two of Through the Needle. This is a podcast where we are looking at the complexities of neighborhood transformation and dreaming about what in the world God might be inviting the church to do in response to that transformation. My name is Tyler Yoder, and I will be your host and your guide for this conversation. So sit back, relax, and put on your thinking caps, because today we are talking about mammon. And if you don't know what mammon is, don't worry, I'll define it in a bit. I'm, I'm excited for today's topic. I think there's a lot of good stuff in here for all of us to think about. I was challenged myself just in preparing for this episode and the ways that I view money and possessions and, well, I, w- I won't give it all away now, but but just one caveat before we start. I'm not coming at today's topic as a political scientist or an expert on capitalism or socialism. My goal here today is to simply point us to God and make us think about how we view money. All right. That's all I've got to say to start, so let's get into it. In our society, money is the end product. It is the be-all, end-all. It is the bee's knees. We tend to measure success based on how much money has gone back and forth between people or into our pocketbooks. Or, well, I mean our virtual bank accounts, because not many people use pocketbooks anymore. So much of our lives revolve around money. And it is important. We can't deny that. We need to have shelter and food, and it's just something that's part of our everyday lives, no matter if we want it to be or not. But we, both both Christians and people who are not Christians, we have a tendency to place too much emphasis on money. And it ends up that if, if we can't quantify it or put a dollar sign to it, then it isn't able to be measured or recognized for the importance that it really has. In the, in the comment section of the article I referenced in the last episode, I read this comment. We don't even have a way to quantify the value of community. Everything just gets reduced to money, like people are just economic units to be shuffled around strategically. I probably spend too much time in the comment sections of articles and and videos reading things that aren't useful or productive in the slightest, but this comment really hit me for the truth that it has. It is very difficult to measure and place importance on things that don't have some sort of quantifiable attribute that we can pull out. So relationships, the overall feeling you get when you walk down the street, the importance of place and location, things that, things that we understand affect us and influence us and are important to us, we struggle to place the appropriate amount of value on them. Instead, looking at how the individual pieces of them affect our money. But we know that money is not everything. (laughs) I remember sitting in my favorite coffee shop one time. I was enjoying a nice afternoon affogato, which, if you haven't had an affogato and you have $3.50 in an afternoon to spend, get the sublime experience of a shot of espresso poured over some delicious handmade gelato. You won't regret it. Anyways. And I overheard the conversation behind me where a guy was lamenting how he had been making quite a bit of money in the business he had opened, but just wasn't happy. He wasn't fulfilled. He was feeling lonely, like, like the only friends he had were business acquaintances. So he had decided to, to get his CDL and close his business and drive semi-truck for a few years to make some money and decide where he wanted to go in life, how, how he could make money and be happy. It was the clearest I'd ever heard somebody, like, in the wild say this. He, he literally said, I don't understand why my money isn't making me happy. I wish I, wish I would have gone up to him and, and t- talked to him about Christ, but alas, my affogato was too all-consuming, and I let the opportunity slip. So I guess maybe you shouldn't get an affogato because you might miss opportunities from the Spirit, but that's something you're going to have to decide for yourself. And for some reason, this idea this idea that money alone won't make you happy, it seems to be only something that people who have achieved the money can understand. Uh, for instance, in J. Cole's recent hit, Middle Child, he raps, I hope that you scrape every dollar you can. I hope you know money won't erase the pain. And I promise that is the last time I will rap on this podcast. But he says, I hope that you know money won't erase the pain. Now, what this young man in the coffee shop fell prey to, and what so many other people fall prey to, is the alluring power of something called mammon. M-A-M-M-O-N. Mammon. So, mammon can be defined as having a debasing attachment to material possessions, or put more simply, I guess, wealth having an evil influence over your life. So, when Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money, in Matthew 6 and Luke 16, the word that he uses for money could better be translated as mammon, but since we don't use the word mammon very much these days, it gets translated as money, because that works too. For too many of us in the Christian church, we have also unintentionally fallen prey to the alluring power of mammon, just like this young coffee shop man. We rely too much on money to make us happy, even though, even though we cognitively know that fulfillment is found in Christ alone. We see the changes happening in the economic landscape around us, and we call it progress, and we're excited. In a short documentary on San Francisco by Alexandra Pelosi, Pelosi laments to a billionaire investor, Ron Conway, that she hardly recognizes her hometown. And he, Ron Conway, quickly brushes it aside and says, that's progress. That's what progress is. That change is good because progress is good. Now, Many Christians also have this view of the world. We see that certain changes are inevitable, because they allow capitalism to flourish, progress to happen, more capital coming in. So this means that we, as Christians, are often colluding with capitalism. We are working in concert with capitalism. Instead of living out the kingdom of God in all aspects of our lives, we are seeing the framework that our country operates in as the good and the blessed way to live. So there is a large group of people who as Mark Sayer says in the This Cultural Moment podcast, who want progress without presence. They want progress without presence. They want the progress of capitalism without the presence of our Creator. Now, part of this goes back to the post-war era when, in order to justify the vilification of communism from the government, Christianity, in a sense, baptized capitalism as God's way for the world. And this developed what Elizabeth Brunig calls a distinctly American capitalist Christianity. As a largely Christian America wanted to legitimize their actions against communism, they were able to bring the church along in their praise of capitalism. So, Obviously, this has led to many problems, the largest of which is, again, quoting Brunig, that American Christians cannot offer up a genuinely revolutionary Christian politics, one that neither seeks to bolster capitalism blatantly nor offer meager patches for its systemic problems. I'm going to read that again. Our collusion with capitalism led to the problem that American Christians cannot offer up a genuinely revolutionary Christian politics. One that neither seeks to bolster capitalism blatantly nor offer meager patches for its systemic problems. Now, some of you may be listening and you're like, what, "What? what is he talking about? I sure as heck don't think that. Last weekend, I held a sign that said, down with the capitalist crock. And this is true. Not all Christians are like this. I'm just, I'm just describing a large portion of American Christians. On the other most popular side of the argument are are those who see socialism as the God-blessed answer. For the government to take care of all things of justice and for the church to work alongside the government in this way so that our society may flourish. And there are many other strains of economic Christian theories, anarchists and libertarians and others. But I'm focusing specifically on the capitalist part because that has maybe been the biggest collusion of the church in the last century And that's because capitalist enterprises fall more easily into the seductive power of mammon because the great opportunity of individual wealth creation within capitalism—this is otherwise known as the American dream—individual wealth creation lends itself to money having too strong of a hold on our lives. However, too much faith in any economic structure is an abandonment of christianity Christian capitalists can fall into the trap of wanting the name of God, but without the power of God, instead relying on the power of the free market. And Christian socialists and other types can fall into the trap of wanting the power of God, but without the name of God, wanting the things that the power of God will bring, as Jesus announces in Luke 4, good news to the poor and so on, but in the name of the government instead of Christ. In in either case... When our faith in our economics and our politics is greater than our faith in God's provision, I believe we are straying from our Christian confession. Now, I get it. This is all an oversimplification. So, so don't hear what I am not saying. I am not saying that capitalism is evil. I kind of like the free market. It it allows for some cool and creative things to happen. It keeps things exciting. And I think good competition really brings out the best and most creative businesses. It's similar to sports. You get better by playing against strong competition, forcing yourself to be creative. And I'm also not saying that socialism is evil. I kind of like socialism. Making sure that the poor and oppressed are cared for, making sure the government is paying attention to the people that can often get swept under the rug, it's good. But I don't place my faith in either of them. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. You can be a Christian and think capitalism is the way to go for America, and you could be a Christian and think socialism is the way to go for America, and you can provide your points and arguments and studies and campaign for it and be really disappointed when things don't go the way you think they should. That's fine. But our real hope lies in Christ and Christ alone not some political structure. We cannot forget that. So yes, we, the church, we work from within our economic and governmental framework. But that doesn't mean that any of this is God's perfectly ordained idea for the way we interact with each other. Instead, God calls us to embrace his upside-down kingdom. And the last line of Jesus in Luke 4 that I just mentioned really gets at this. He says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is almost certainly a reference to Leviticus 25, where God tells the people that every 50th year will be a year of the Lord's favor, a year of jubilee, where everyone is restored to the things that belong to them, where people are liberated, the land lies fallow, possessions are given back to the rightful owners. This this doesn't sound like capitalism or socialism or, or really any other economic framework that we know of. Every 50 years, things just reset. People are given back their stuff. We're not making use of all this land that we have to grow crops. But in between those 50 years, you know, go ahead, make money, make sales, trade, and move. It's kind, of, it's kind of an inconceivable thing for us to understand. And Jesus has more to say about this in Matthew chapter 19. So here we see a rich young man come to Jesus asking about how to inherit eternal life. Jesus gives him a list of commandments that the man should keep in order to inherit eternal life. And the young man has done all of those things, but still feels he is missing something and asks, What more do I lack? And at this question, I imagine Jesus pauses, looks straight in this young man's eyes and says, Go, sell your possessions and give all you have to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. As the young man is walking away sad because of his many possessions, Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is such a striking statement from Jesus. It's crazy. It's one that Christians have wrestled with ever since he uttered those words. Go sell your possessions to have treasure in heaven? What? I've worked hard for the things that I own. I don't want to sell them and give the money away from them. I used my money to help lobby to get that new microbrewery to open up down the street, to get my favorite coffee shop in my neighborhood, to move out of the neighborhood I used to live in because it was becoming unsafe and so I could be closer to the things that I want. What in the world... Could Jesus' words mean for us, especially for us here in America, where we have more wealth than pretty much anyone else in the world and at any other point of history? What does it mean for us to sell our possessions and give to the poor, especially in this day and age of nuance and people getting taken advantage of and corruption and of the blessing of wealth? And these are the questions left ringing in our ears. The questions that we would rather not deal with today, especially as we look at our neighborhoods and the immense complexities in front of us regarding the ways they are changing. It's easy for us Christians to, as Mark Sayers puts it, to try and take the goodies of consumerism and simply paint a Christian veneer over top of it. And we can even do all this while denouncing the prosperity gospel as a fake gospel. As long as we surround ourselves with things, with neighbors who are like us, with churches full of comfortable people, except for that one person who always loves to sing but isn't very good at it, but you know it's him and we love him, but we just can't take too many more people like him, can we? As long as we do these things, we unintentionally buffer ourselves from what is happening in our neighborhoods around us. We still call ourselves Christians and probably even justice-minded Christians as well as we post things on Facebook and wear advocacy t-shirts, but our possessions and our wealth prevents us from truly seeing and loving our neighbor. I recently got to sit down and talk with someone from a sister church here in town who Well, I'll I'll just let him introduce himself, but I think that part of our conversation is very important for this topic, how the goodies of consumerism look good, taste good, feel good, and sound good. We see and we hear thousands of advertisements a day that say if we have those things, we will be satisfied or we will be able to rest. However, the question that we must ask ourselves when approaching capitalism or consumerism is this, no matter how beneficial this is for me, is this beneficial for my neighbor? So, listen. Listen into part of our conversation here, and pay attention to what he says about churches being able to integrate socioeconomically in the perceived competition for resources. Take a listen.
1: Uh, my name is Greg Wilson. Um, I am an urban planner at uh, Summit Design and Engineering, but uh, my degree is in urban planning, and I do a lot of planning work across Virginia. Um, as well as help with uh, grant applications and grant management for uh, different grants that local governments can receive for mainly for community development economic development purposes and I worked for uh, many years for the Virginia Baptist Mission Board in Virginia that worked for the Baptist churches across the state and in um, Maryland prior to that worked in the inner city of Baltimore for for six years Very much had a big emphasis on helping churches in transitional communities. I think as Americans We have lost sight those of us in the church within America have lost sight of um, how wealthy we are. Mm-hmm. Most of us are. Um, and, and, and we think, and, and part of the premise of the book, obviously, is we think everybody else, you know, if their lives were improved, they would become like us in terms of our own wealth and home ownership and all those things. Um, and I think part of, I mean, there's a lot of reasons the church is not ha- doesn't have the numbers it once had. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of different reasons for that um, uh, but I, I do think that the church in America has lost sight of those lower rungs of the socioeconomic classes um, we just can't relate to them because of the wealth we have and, and again we don't think of ourselves it's it's the point where we don't think of ourselves as wealthy yeah but in the grand scheme of the world we're wealthy <laughs> mm-hmm. even our lower middle class and even our upper lower class we're wealthy compared to so many parts of the world yeah. uh, and I think as the church and as Christians we need to really keep our eye on that and understand what the faith what Christian faith means um, in all contexts not just our own um, America is very very guilty of the uh, um, the, the whole uh, philosophy or, or, or religious thing about you know the the, uh, the What's I forgot, I'm about to forget the term, the, uh, the, the preacher that preaches, put your hands on the radio and you'll get money. The prosperity, mm. the prosperity, prosperity gospel, gospel yeah. the prosperity <laughs> gospel, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, it, it, it's and to me, the whole issue, a lot of times when when I've heard and I've seen this actually in, in, in churches, you know, churches can stay integrated, oftentimes at the lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder. And at the upper rung of the socioeconomic ladder, mm. they have a harder time staying integrated. In the middle rung, we're, where the, there's, there's perceived uh, competition for resources, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, in, the, in the middle classes, um, you know, there would be some very liturgical Episcopal uh, churches and all that, with, that, which would actually be fairly integrated. Um, and certainly a, a, a storefront church in an in inner city somewhere could oftentimes be integrated. It's that middle where we have the hardest time. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of that is definitely goes to our idea of what is wealth and mm-hmm. the idea that if I get some, somebody else loses some.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as opposed to the idea that you know, we all ought to do as best we can with what we have, where we are. Um, and wealth is, should not be a defining issue for us in terms of our faith.
0: When Jesus answers the young man's first question in Matthew 19 about inheriting eternal life, he pulls out a few of the Ten Commandments and then just adds Leviticus 19.18 along with them. Love your neighbor as yourself. The guy doesn't really question it at all, and it's recurrent in Jesus' ministry that he pulls out this verse. The second greatest commandment, even, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if we take this seriously, to love our neighbors as ourselves, this means we have to have a completely different framework for the way we personally and the church view our possessions, view the resources around us, and enter into the economic sphere of the world, seeking that genuinely revolutionary Christian politic. Not because it is revolutionary, but because it is ordained by God and it brings wholeness and shalom here and now eternal life, abundant life, here and now. Jesus challenges us to think of our neighbors, to think about what things can benefit our neighbors, not just ourselves. The struggle to integrate our churches socioeconomically is, in large part, likely due to our view of possessions, our view of what we see as finite, limited resources around us, looking at things like like a pyramid where only some people can achieve the goal of getting to the top. But the kingdom of God says that it isn't just those with the most means or it isn't just those with the most business power and best ideas who come out on top, but that the only top is God. The top is not a Fortune 500 company and the top is not the government. The top is not a fledgling group of revolutionaries and it is not the militaristic might of your country. No, there is no top like that. And really, there isn't even a top at all. The psalmist in Psalm 8 writes that God has set his glory in the heavens and humans a little lower than the angels. God is the top and all else is below him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24. The only top we have is God. So this frees us to think about our possessions and wealth differently, to be able to think about our neighbors and neighborhoods differently and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In his commentary on this chapter in Matthew, Richard Gardner writes that possessions are part of the totality of life which we surrender at baptism. The totality of life. For the young man in this story, he was willing to surrender his actions, his thoughts, his deeds, but he was not willing to surrender his possessions. He had fallen into a consumeristic mindset where his possessions gave him the comfort and worth he felt that he needed. It is no less important for us now to discern what the things are that we are putting our trust and comfort in. In baptism, we are called to surrender the totality of our lives to Christ, to put all of our trust and all of our comfort in Christ. It's a pretty striking call. So after the young man walks away sad in Matthew 19, Jesus mentions that it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This is a very hyperbolic statement from Christ, and even his disciples feel it. Who then can be saved? They respond incredulously. If you can't get to heaven, if you're rich, and, and wealth being one of the primary indicators of having a blessed life, then who can be saved? Jesus is being hyperbolic because obviously a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. But does this really mean that rich people will be unable to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is asking us to think very long and very hard about this. Maybe if he would have said something like, it is harder for a lion to jump through a flaming hoop than for a rich man to get to heaven. He would have just meant that it took a lot more energy and effort to get to the place where the rich person can get to heaven. But instead, he says something that is completely impossible and ridiculous. A lion jumping through a flaming hoop is ridiculous, but it's not impossible. Jesus is asking us to think about what it means for us today to sell our possessions and love our neighbors. He is telling us that we need to be very serious about this when it comes to wealth and possessions. That we don't operate as the world operates, but we operate on the foundation of Christ and the love of God. And Jesus goes on and continues his commentary on wealth and the kingdom of God in the following chapter with a parable about the owner of a vineyard who paid all of his workers the same day's wage, even though some only worked one hour and some a full 12 hours. Those who worked the full day were jealous that those who only worked an hour received the same as them. They felt they deserved more. They felt that since resources are limited and must be competed for, they deserve to make more than the others. The kingdom of God, however, flips this on its head and calls us to rethink our priorities, especially within our neighborhoods. Bob Lupton says in his essay on Restoring at-Risk Communities that Programs cannot fix communities. Only neighbors can do that. The teachings of Jesus are a clarion call for Christians everywhere to put off the trappings of this world, this, this drive to gather resources and possessions and wealth at the expense of others, and put on the freedom of Christ, living in a completely different framework. So while programs are good whether government programs or local nonprofits or church programs, it still remains that programs cannot fix communities. They can make life a little better in the community, for sure. If a neighborhood group cleans up the trash in the community once a month, that will make the community more pleasant, a bit better. But if the neighbors and the people who live in the community don't stop tossing out trash, the community will not be fixed. So the question is not, how do we make this community nicer? But how do we get our neighbors involved in our community? It's a different question, and it relies on relationship, living life in your community as Jesus did with his community, loving our neighbors as ourselves. We can't just pour capital into communities to fix them. We can't just pour money and businesses into communities to fix them. The power of mammon, the allure of wealth, is never going to fix a community or make it whole. Only relationships can do that. And honestly, only a relationship with Christ can do that. Now, Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Programs are good. Businesses are good. We should do those things. We should support them as the church. But only relationship can transform a community into something more resembling wholeness. And so this involves redistribution, and I'm not talking about the standard redistribution of wealth that is so controversial in the political sphere, but a redistribution of our lives. The Christian Community Development Association, or the CCDA, in their handbook, Making Neighborhoods Whole, gives eight keys to their ministry, one of which is redistribution. In another essay he wrote for this book, Lupton says, Most fundamentally... Redistribution in Christian community development is about people sharing their lives with others in ways that bridge the chasms of class, race, and culture. So while, yes, this does include financial redistribution—after all, John Perkins and Wayne Gordon make the good point in the CCDA handbook that justice should not just be available to those with the economic means to acquire it— it is more so a redistribution of all the resources in a community— Knowledge, education, time, businesses, money, relationships, things. As we surrender the totality of our lives to Christ, this redistribution becomes natural. We no longer view our possessions or our wealth as something sacred, something that we must protect from others, but instead we see ourselves as simply stewards of the things we have. The earth is the Lord's, and everything is in it. We are not limited to operating only in the ways of this world, whether it be socialism or capitalism or anything in between or in extreme. We are not limited to it because our God is not. The more we put on Christ, the more we can ask and answer the question, no matter how beneficial this is to me, is this beneficial to my neighbors? So while capitalism may elevate individual enterprise to the status of king and socialism may elevate government to the status of king, the church is called out of these worldly frameworks to live in the reality that our only king is Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Wow, (laughs) this episode is kind of packed full of stuff money is contentious in our lives and and really it it should be. We we need to think critically about the way we view and use money, about the way we use and view our possessions, and the way we think about our neighbors and neighborhoods and their relationships with money and wealth. So hopefully you've been you've been challenged to think about the ways that you view your money and possessions. I know I certainly have and And I really hope that we can all go from here and pay more attention to the lives of our neighbors and the fabric of our neighborhoods, not just the economic standings of them. Well, next week, we'll be right back here, and we will be looking more specifically at the church and why it is important for the church to pay attention to neighborhood transformation and then a little bit about ways that God might be inviting us to engage. I'm excited for that. So, until next time, grace and peace! i